Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hi, gang. Bill Creasy here with another episode of Scripture Uncovered. On last week's podcast, I spoke to you about the importance of traveling to the Holy Land and of experiencing firsthand the places of the Bible. Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Turkey, Greece, Italy, and a lot of other places. Reading scripture at home is reading black words on a white page. But reading the stories of the Bible where they take place, seated on the Mount of Beatitudes or on a boat on the Sea of Galilee at sunset with a rising full moon over the Golan Heights in the east, that brings color, tone, and texture to scripture. It makes the stories unforgettable. It brings the stories and the people to life, and it makes them real. Another joy of travel is meeting people from different places and cultures. This past week, our friend and colleague from Turkey, Farid Kairak and his family, arrived in Los Angeles for a three-month stay. I spent an hour with them on the way up to my class in La Cañada. They'll be visiting San Diego several more times during their stay, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of days at the beach this summer with lots of backyard barbecues. I also had lunch last Tuesday with our Egyptian friend and colleague, Imad Faltis. I've known Imad for nearly 20 years now. Imad and his family emigrated to the U.S. from Egypt in 2013 on the 4th of July and they'll be receiving their United States citizenship later this year or early in 2019. Imad is now a professor of history at Long Beach City College here in California, and we're all very proud of him and his family. It's a great privilege knowing Farid and Imad, and I thank God for their friendship and the shared experiences that we've had together in Turkey, in Egypt, and here in Southern California. Which brings me to another great friend I've known for many years, Miriam Feinberg Vemash. Miriam and her family live just outside of Jerusalem on the road down to Tel Aviv. And when we visit Jerusalem, my wife and I often have dinner with Miriam and her husband, Arik, and we talk about the many adventures that we've had together. Miriam is a writer and a real expert in daily life at the time of Jesus. A few years ago, she and I co-led a teaching tour that we called Meet the Women of the Bible, a tour in which we stopped at biblical sites where the stories took place that featured women in the Bible. And we told the stories from the women's point of view. It was great fun and we'd love to do it again sometime soon. If you've been to Israel and stopped at any of the countless gift shops, you'll have seen many of Miriam's books. Daily Life at the Time of Jesus, Women at the Time of the Bible, Food at the Time of the Bible, a book that includes some really good recipes, and How Kids Lived in Bible Days. They've all been bestsellers for years. 
Miriam's most recent book is an historical novel titled The Scroll. It's about a young Jewish woman who survived the siege of Masada, the Jews' last stand against the Roman Empire. The story is based on a real archaeological find, a divorce document that names both the husband and the wife, Joseph and Miriam. The date, the year Masada fell to the Romans, AD 73, and the place of issue, which was Masada itself. Miriam is a great storyteller, and in her novel, she brings the people, the times, and the places to life. It's a great read, and you can order it on Amazon.com, either as a paperback or a Kindle download. I highly recommend it. You'll have a great time reading Miriam's The Scroll. Miriam Feinberg Vamosh, The Scroll. And speaking of books, in our current study of St. Paul's prison epistles, I've always recommended F.F. Bruce's Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. It was first published in 1977, and it's a classic, though a rather scholarly, biography of St. Paul. Nowadays, I'd like to add to that Jerome Murphy O'Connor's Paul, A Critical Life, which was published in 1996. It's an in-depth study of the sources relating to St. Paul's life and Paul, His Story, published in 2004, which is a short and very readable biography based upon Murphy O'Connor's earlier Critical Life. Both are published by Oxford University Press. Jerome Murphy O'Connor was an Irish Dominican priest and a first-rate New Testament scholar. He had been a professor of New Testament at the École Biblique in Jerusalem from 1967 until his death in 2013. I once met him in Jerusalem, and we had a wonderful conversation. He was a very gentle soul with a lively sense of humor and a really, truly great man. I mention him because I was reading his Paul, A Critical Life, this morning, thinking about the time St. Paul spent in Arabia. Arabia? Yes, Arabia. After St. Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, he stayed in Damascus preaching as fervently about Christ as he had once, once preached fervently against him. As my Jewish colleague at UCLA, Michael Cohen, once said to me about Paul, once a fanatic, always a fanatic. <laughs> the Jews in Damascus wanted to kill Paul, so his followers had to get him out of town in the middle of the night, lowering him down the city wall in a basket. In a basket, picture the great apostle Paul in a laundry hamper being lowered down from a wall by a rope, touching down at the bottom, getting out, climbing out of the basket, and scampering off into the night with a dirty sock hanging on one ear. I think that's a hilariously funny scene. Well, Paul then went to Jerusalem where he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, so they sent Barnabas to meet him. Now, Barnabas, was a believer and a man of mature age and judgment. 
and Barnabas discerned that Paul was genuine, so he brought him to meet the other apostles. Paul then began preaching fervently about Christ in Jerusalem, causing no end of trouble. The apostles finally had him taken down to Caesarea Maritima, put on board a ship, and they sent him home to Tarsus. And then we read in Acts, at last the church had some peace. <laughs> That's another really funny scene. St. Paul is kicked out of Jerusalem and things finally settle down. But what did Paul do after he went home to Tarsus? We're not told in Acts, but when St. Paul writes his epistle to the Galatian churches sometime in AD 50 to 52, he says, and I'm reading Galatians 1, beginning at verse 13. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Well, St. Paul went to Arabia. Well, just where is that? The ancient geographer Strabo writes in his geography that Arabia was bounded by the whole extent of the Arabian Gulf, that is, the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. Essentially, all of what today is Jordan and Saudi Arabia, the vast desert area east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, and south all the way down to the Persian Gulf as far as Yemen and Oman. Well, most likely, Paul didn't go that far, but he probably ventured southeast of Damascus into what was then Nabataean territory. Most likely, he stayed in the desert area to the southeast of Damascus, spending a total of three years. And what happened there? Well, again, he writes in Galatians chapter 1 at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Wow, by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. When did that happen? Jesus spent three years on the roads of Damascus with his other disciples, the ones who become later his apostles. Three years of teaching, preaching, and healing. Three years with Jesus, sitting around the campfire at night, talking until late into the night. Jesus would tell parables, stories, stories that were 
clever and intriguing, thrown alongside an old truth to illuminate those truths in a striking and memorable fashion. Parables, para alongside bola, the verb to throw, thrown alongside. And quite often, after telling a story in a parable later that day or later that night, his disciples would, t would ask him, tell me, what did you mean when you said so-and-so? You know, how did that illuminate the old truth? And Jesus would sit with them around the campfire, eating from a can of beanie weenies, and he'd tell them what it meant, how he came to that story, why he presented that particular story. So he was teaching them as well. They had, in effect, a three-year seminar with the Lord Jesus Christ on the roads of Galilee. After Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and after his ascension 40 days later into heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the disciples, now apostles, felt they needed to replace Judas, who had killed himself. And they nominated two people. And the criterion for being nominated, for being a capital A apostle, one of the 12, was that whoever they nominated had to have been an eyewitness to Jesus' entire public ministry from his baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist all the way through his public ministry into his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Well, obviously, Paul didn't qualify for that. But Paul becomes the apostle. Perhaps during that time that he spent in Arabia, in the Nabataean territory, outside Damascus, in the desert alone, pondering the, the extraordinary events that happened to him on the road to Damascus, and the reaction that he had from people in Damascus when he presented Christ. Perhaps during that time, the risen and glorified Christ appeared to Paul and taught him the gospel. You know, in Colossians, Paul writes an epistle to the church in Colossae, a church that he had never actually been to. It was founded by remote control when he was in Ephesus. People passing through Ephesus heard the gospel and then took it home. But in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 15 through verse 20, we have the Christ hymn. And here's what, here's what Paul writes. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he himself might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, all the fullness of God. 
and through him to reconcile all things for him, making peace by the blood of his cross through him, whether things on earth or those in heaven. Well, that is an extraordinarily high view of who Christ is and what he did. And you don't find any of that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they weren't even written yet. So where did Paul get all this? I wonder. Did the risen and glorified Christ appear to Paul during those three years in the deserts of Arabia, the Nabataean territory outside of Damascus? Did Paul, like the other apostles, have a three-year seminar, a three-year tutorial with Christ? But with Paul, it was the risen and glorified Christ. Peter and the others refer to Jesus as Jesus. Paul refers to him almost always as Christ Jesus. Christ was not Jesus' last name. It was his title, Messiah, the Anointed One. And for Paul, putting Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ is like saluting and saying, Sir. That was Paul's relationship with the Lord. His relationship was not with Jesus in the flesh on the roads of Galilee, eating with him, sleeping around the campfire with him, joking with him. You know, as John writes in 1 John, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we gazed upon him. But Paul never had that opportunity. But Paul may very well have had the opportunity to spend that three years with the risen and glorified Christ, where he truly understands who Christ is and what he did, where he truly understands that. That's a remarkable thing to think about. Three years with the risen and glorified Christ. And what was the fruit of those days? How did it result? Well, the other apostles uh, Peter, Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And Peter eventually ended up in Rome and, and was executed in Rome, along with Paul, sometime between 64 and 68, in the persecutions under Nero. The other apostles, what did they do? Well, Matthew wrote a gospel. John wrote a gospel, three letters, and Revelation. But Paul wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, evangelized all of Asia Minor. Luke writes that after his time in Ephesus, everyone in Asia Minor had heard the gospel. And Paul evangelized a pretty good chunk of Europe as well. Not bad, not bad for Paul, St. Paul, the apostle. A great story of the greatest of sinners becoming the greatest of saints. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, there are a couple of opportunities coming up to travel with Dr. Creasy on one of his extraordinary teaching tours. First, you can join Dr. Creasy for The Best of Italy, 
a fabulous adventure exploring Italy's beautiful churches, classic architecture, stunning artwork, unforgettable music, and the world's best cuisine. That's coming up October 23rd to November 1st, 2018. Then, in January 2019, from the 4th to the 12th, we'll be walking in the footsteps of Jesus on the Israel Highlights Tour. For the past 25 years, over 2,000 Logo students have traveled with Dr. Creasy to the Holy Land, in small groups of 30 to 50 students. It's a life-changing experience walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Now's your chance, January 4th to 12th, 2019. Go to logosbiblestudy.com travel to find out more about the best of Italy and the Israel Highlights Tour. Now back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. Welcome back, gang. Hey, I'd like to turn now to uh, your Bible questions. Now, one of our listeners asked, how does the Bible that Jews read differ from the Bible that Christians read? Well, to begin with, Jews have the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we often call the Old Testament. So do we, but we have also 27 books in the New Testament. So let's put the New Testament aside and look at the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Jews have 39 books in their Scriptures. Their Scriptures are called the Tanakh. It's an abbreviation for the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kavetuim, uh, that is, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. 39 books. The Torah, or the Law, the Books of Moses, include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Prophets include Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve Minor Prophets. The writings are the poetical books, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. That's the Hebrew Scriptures. And notice, as I read through them, we have the exact same books in our Christian Old Testament, but they're in a different order. That's important. In our Bibles, we have a linear narrative from Genesis all the way through Esther, and then we hit Job. Now, if you've studied with me over the years through the Bible, verse by verse, Genesis through Esther, a straight linear narrative, chronologically linear. And what do we learn from that narrative? Well, to sum it up in 25 words or less, if you do what God wants, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. It's as simple as that. But you and I both know that you and I can do what God wants and things don't necessarily go well. In fact, you can be following what God wants and your whole life can fall apart. It could be a train wreck. Terrible things can happen. Why? Job, in our canon of the Old Testament, comes right after Esther. So we have the linear narrative teaching the lesson that if you do what God wants, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. And then we turn the page to Job and Job calls into question 
the entire linear narrative. Job is positioned in the canon specifically to do that. Well, that's a shock. After Esther and Job, we have the poetical books. Uh, we have uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, the Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. Protestant Bibles don't have Wisdom of Solomon or Sirach, but we do. And then we have the prophets. The prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, which includes Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Notice Daniel's among the prophets in our Old Testament, but Daniel's among the poetical, or the prophets, uh, I'm sorry, the poetical books uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then we move through the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. All the prophets from Isaiah through Malachi recapitulate back into that linear narrative. For example, Isaiah is functioning as a prophet from 740 to 686 BC at the time of the kings. All the prophets are working during the time of the kings. So we have our linear narrative, and then with the prophets, they recapitulate back into the narrative. The poetical books, uh, they all take us back into the linear narrative as well. The Psalms, 72 of them, ascribed to David, story of David, first and second Samuel. Proverbs are written by Solomon, who is the king after David. Ecclesiastes, uh, written by Solomon, are back there in the linear narrative. The Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, written by Solomon, back in the linear narrative, and so on. So think of our canon of scripture. Genesis, all the way through Esther, we learn a lesson. If you do what God says, all will go well. If you don't, it won't. Job calls that lesson into question at a much, much deeper level. And then we have the poetical books recapitulating back into the linear narrative. All the way through the poetical books and the prophets. It's a very unified work as we have the canon structured and we learn very specific lessons from that linear narrative with the recapitulations. In the Jewish Bible, organized, structured in a different fashion, in the Hebrew Bible, with the law, the prophets, and the writings, there's not a linear movement. Rather, it's like a flower unfolding. It's an entirely different experience. Even though each of the books in the Hebrew Bible are exactly the same as the books in our Old Testament, word for word, exactly the same, the way we read the books in our canon differs from the way Jews read the books in their canon. That's the difference. Yeah, a little bit technical, I suppose, but not too bad. And uh, look forward to hearing, uh, seeing you next week and uh, talking to you. And I do see you when I'm sitting here uh, talking on the, uh, on the microphone. I imagine you out there listening. I hope you are. And if you are, drop a line. Send in a question and I'll try to answer it here on Scripture Uncovered.
God bless you all. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Go to LogosBibleStudy.com travel to see upcoming teaching tours. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.